Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. So here at Harvest, we are going through, in a three-month period, the 13 letters that the Apostle Paul wrote that are called Living Letters. Each week we're taking one of them, and today's letter is the book of Romans. What I'd like you to do is, before we look into God's Word, uh, is to turn to a couple people around you and share something. Let's share with each other a little bit. I think all of us... In our world, whether it's just the world in general or even our personal world, we all deal with a lot of bad news, right? (laughs) I want you to turn to a couple people around you and hopefully maybe even somebody uh, who might not know your answer already. And I want you to share with them just at least one time you received good news, okay? What is one time... You received good news and what that good news was about. So go ahead and take two or three minutes to do that. Share with somebody around you. When did you learn some good news? There must be a lot of good news out there. (laughs) That's great to hear. That's great to hear that the voices are loud when we're talking about good news. Now, you see, there's a word. There's a reason I did that. There are certain words that we think are like really religious words or something, right? And that they're, they're not the kind of words that people use out on the streets. And one of those words is the word gospel. And we always, those of us who've been in the church, we, we think we know what the gospel is and we talk about the gospel of Jesus a lot and we think that's one of those religious words. But If you lived in first century Rome and you wanted to hear the gospel, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have anything to do with the Bible to begin with. If, if the Roman emperor, uh, had, say, a son was born and a new heir was born and he was excited, this was his good news. It was his gospel, if you look at the Greek word. His good news. He shared it. He sent messengers out to share the good news. Hey, my son has been born or something like that. And that's what the word gospel means. It means good news. And as we look at the book of Romans today, the letter of Romans, it's all about the good news. So on the map, you will see. Paul writes the book of Romans or the letter to the Romans when he was in Corinth. And he tells about this. He tells them why he writes it and what he wants to do. He had to go back to Jerusalem because for many years, Paul was involved in collecting an offering for the poor in Jerusalem. And as he went out into all these other areas and preached the gospel and planted churches, these were Gentile people. The Jewish people is where the Christian faith started with Jewish people. And they became believers in Jesus. And then they sent out from Jerusalem, they sent the good news out all over the known world. And as it went out, 
some things started happening. There was a famine in Jerusalem, and a lot of the Christians that were Jewish Christians were really, really struggling. So Paul collected offerings from the various churches, and he said, hey, I need to take that back. But then after Jerusalem, I want to go to Rome. Paul didn't start the church at Rome, but he wanted to go to them, to the church at Rome, not to stay there, but as kind of a landing spot so they could really, really understand what his gospel that he had been preaching was and then help send him over to Spain to the next missionary journey. We talk about Paul's three missionary journeys. That may have been his fourth one. (laughs) That's what Romans is about. It is a great description of the gospel. It is a great description of doctrine. And a lot of people think, well, Paul just sat around one day and said, oh, I just want to talk about all the doctrine I can think about. No. He had a real specific purpose. He wanted the people at Rome to know what it was he was preaching. So they could get behind him, so that they could help him move forward. And there was also probably an issue between Jewish and Gentile Christians in some of these house churches at Rome. So that's why I say the background is Paul wrote Romans to explain the gospel. He preached to Christians at Rome, could understand it and support his missionary work, and he also addressed the Jew-Gentile issue by stressing that all are equal before God in matters of sin and salvation. So here is the theme of Romans. This is what Romans is all about. It's a long, long letter. It's really hard in 35 or 40 minutes to to cover Romans, but we're going to try. Romans is about the universal, powerful effects of the gospel for believers in Jesus Christ. The universal, powerful effects of the gospel for believers in Jesus Christ. And I want us to turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. That's where we're going to really hone in on today. And we're going to see how this passage sets up Romans and how all of Romans flows out of this. So here he says, he's, he's talking about, oh, I need to come preach. I want to come preach. Even though they're Christians, I want to come to you, Romans, and I want to preach the gospel to you, Romans. And he talks about this urgency, this necessity to preach the gospel. And he says, in describing why he's so urgent, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew Then to the Gentile, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, why does the gospel of Jesus make such a drastic impact or a dramatic impact? Why does it change people's lives? Why does it change entire cultures? Well, this, these verses tell us why. It's the power of God to change lives. We see that right there in the first part of verse 16. I am not ashamed 
of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation. Why would Paul say, I'm not ashamed? Well, if you're in Rome, you're in the capital of the Gentile world, there's all kind of ideologies out there. It would be kind of strange to start talking about some man who was put to death about about that being good news, right? Are, Are you ashamed of that, Paul? No, I am not ashamed of that. And in fact, even Paul's own religious background, he was a Jewish person and he had attained near the highest level in Judaism with a lot of emphasis on what you do. And now he's going to talk to them about a gospel that's not about what you do, it's about what somebody else did. And so he says, look, I'm, I'm not ashamed of it. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why? Because it's the power of God. It is the power of God. Here's why we're not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's powerful. It has changed people's lives. Has it changed your life? We're going to give you a chance to praise God for that today if it has. It is the power of God. Now, the Romans, they knew about power. They they were a powerful society. They had military power. They were able to subdue other nations. They were powerful in civil engineering. They were known for their elaborate road system, right? The Roman roads. In law, they boasted some of the greatest lawmakers in history. And in art and literature, they had all kind of power. But you know what? They did not have power in one very important area, and that was Changing the hearts of people. They didn't have power to eliminate slavery. Half of the Roman Empire were slaves. Now, it wasn't the same exact kind of slavery as America experienced in our history, but it's still, think about that, half of the Roman Empire were slaves. They had no power to overcome hatred and hostility. The Roman Empire was full of violence and corruption. Even while they're this great Rome, everybody... Looks to them for all these things. They had no power and they had a very high rate of suicide. And Paul says to them, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. It reminds me so much of America, doesn't it? America has a lot of power, right? We have military power. We have space exploration. We have the power of technology. We have the power of financial stability. But we don't have the power to change people's lives. Look at, look at our world and our culture and how much hatred and prejudice and violence there is. And our society is so much like first century Rome that this is really relevant when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God. Amen. It can change lives. That's, that's why it makes a drastic impact. This, another reason it makes a drastic impact is because it's just universal and simple. The gospel's for everybody. Look what he says there in the highlighted section. It brings salvation to whom? To everyone who believes. To everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. That's... 
Paul's gospel eliminates the barriers between Jewish people and Gentile, and they were huge in those days. Those two groups of people did not get along and did not want anything to do with each other. And yet, Paul says, look, the law, the Jewish law that erected some of these barriers, it's been broken down and the gospel has come in. And now the power of the gospel, it's it's for everyone who believes, first to the Jew. Indeed, the gospel came to the Jew first. The Jewish people were God's chosen people in the Old Testament. And then you come into Jesus' ministry. Whom did he talk to first? You follow the early church. Who did they go to first? They went to Jewish people first. And then the Jewish people were designed to spread it out to the Gentiles. So it was, it was historical. It was chronological. But it was, there was also some special relevance for God's chosen people. You go all the way back to Abraham. And he said, I chose Abraham not just to be the father of one nation, but the father of how many nations? Many nations. So the gospel makes an impact because it's universal and simple. It also makes an impact because it reveals God's righteousness. Verse 17, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, what, what do you mean the righteousness of God? When we define that, we're talking about character, we're talking about activity, and we're also talking about status, character. God is a righteous God. The gospel shows that God is righteous. That's what his character is. But it also talks about activity. God has engaged in activity to make those of us who were not righteous, righteous. His activity of sending his son, Jesus, that's how the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And it also is a status. Those who are not righteous, those who are wrong, those who are guilty, um, that would be all of us, through the blood of Jesus Christ have been given a new status in which we're righteous. I think I've told you this before, but when we when we moved to Chicago for me to do some advanced graduate work, you know, I lived in North Carolina and had the the car that we took up there had North Carolina tags on it. And so you're up there for a while and then you see that you're going to be there longer. And so, OK, now I need to switch these. And I I, I got the new tags that in those days, they actually gave you new, new tags. And I had it. And one day I was driving to school and a police officer <laughs> stopped me. And I'm like, what? I wasn't, I don't think I was speeding. I was going along. Anyway, long story short, uh, my tag and the sticker on it and uh, uh, the registration paper that's, you know, in your glove box, they didn't match. <laughs> I think they thought this... This seminary student had stolen a car or something <laughs> to get to seminary, you know. And, and so I got like two tickets, um, that there were two different offenses and I had to go to court. And I, I'm like, I, we don't have any money. How can we, you know, and how many, how many hundreds of dollars is all of this going to cost? And we go through all of this and we stand for it and you wait and you wait and you wait and then you appear before the judge and I explain to the judge that what I did and I'd gotten the thing and what had happened is they had mailed the new tag to me and it was 
It was right there at home in my garage. It was just sitting right there, not on the car. So things weren't matching. And I don't know if he just felt like it was a good day for him or something, or he felt sorry for me. It's like, oh, this, he just looked at me and said, go. (laughs) You know what he did? He took the person who was wrong. I was clearly in the wrong and he declared me righteous. He said, you go put the right tag on and go. And that's what justification is. That's what the righteousness of God is. When God takes those of us who are sinful and he says, because of my son, Jesus Christ, and what he has accomplished on the cross, I am going to declare that you are righteous. Go. (laughs) It declares the righteousness of God. Well, how does... How does it make this impact? We're talking about the impact the gospel makes. Well, the rest of the verse tells us how it makes the impact. It's a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. How does, how does it happen? By faith. That's it. It's by faith, period. This is how you become righteous. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. You believe in him for salvation. You believe in who he is. You know you need him and you depend on him. And it is not just believing that. There's a huge difference between believing in or or believing that and believing in. Right? You can believe that something is true. But when you say, no, I'm going to believe in it, I'm going to put my faith, my dependence. So, for instance, let's say you're a single man and you're looking for a wife. And let's say here's Gertrude over here. And you say, you know, I believe that Gertrude would make somebody a nice wife. It doesn't take you anything to say that, does it? Right? I believe that. Okay, you're just saying intellectually somewhere, yeah, I could see, okay, yeah, I believe, I believe that. Here's how I know if you really believe, if you, if you go to Gertrude and you establish a relationship with her and you say, Gertrude, will you be my wife? I believe in you. I want, you see the difference? It's, it's one thing to say, oh, I believe that. You know, I, I think all kind of people in American society believe that somehow Jesus is the Savior, right? The Son of God. But the question is, do they believe in Him? Are they putting their faith in Him? Are they depending on Him? Not just that, oh, He's just one of, a, Many different religious leaders. From first to last. Faith from first to last. It's putting your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is not what others teach about what it takes to be right with God. Christian science, for instance, says there's but one way to heaven. Harmony in Christ in divine science shows us this way. Jehovah's Witnesses say... All who by reason of faith in Jehovah God and in Christ Jesus dedicate themselves to do God's will and then faithfully carry out their dedication will be rewarded with everlasting life. 
Did you get that? You got to faithfully carry out that dedication to get your reward. Mormonism says baptism is the very gateway into the kingdom of heaven, an indispensable step in our salvation and exaltation. Eastern mysticism says there's no supernatural intervention. We bear the whole responsibility for our actions. If we attain the clear vision of what we are, the divine or inner light and the God within, (laughs) we need not go elsewhere. Transcendental meditation is a path to God. The Roman Catholic Church in their official dogma, I do believe there are individual Catholics who are saved, truly saved, but the Catholic Church official, the creed of the people of God, Pope Paul VI, reaffirmed that baptism is necessary for salvation. It wipes away sin and infuses the divine life of grace into the recipient, who also becomes a member of the Catholic Church and an heir to heaven. But what does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches that There is a righteousness that is by, what's the next word? Faith. From first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Martin Luther was a dedicated monk. I mean, he was in the monastery. He was obsessed with guilt. He fasted until his cheeks caved in. In winter... Freezing winter, he slept without a blanket and he would confess his sins for six hours at a stretch. How can you confess sin for six hours? I mean, uh, the only person I know, Corey, our associate, I think he probably, uh, other than that, I'm not sure I know anybody who could confess for six hours. So one day in the year 1515, Martin Luther comes across this verse that you're seeing. I'm, I'm pointing there because I'm seeing it there. <laughs> you're seeing it here. <laughs> Romans 1:17. The righteous will live by faith. And he saw that people will live only by faith. They'll be saved by faith. They'll be justified by faith. It's not faith plus something else. It's not faith and works. Now, of course, we are going to learn later in the New Testament that a true faith indeed does work as a result. James talks about that. But it's not to get saved, to become a Christian, that you have to have faith plus something else. This became the kind of cornerstone of what we know as the Protestant Reformation, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But that clashed with what the church he was involved with was teaching. Because that church taught that faith was good, but you need good works also. That God was willing and able to save people from their sins, but he required some religious ritual or some good deed, some act of penance to show that that sinner was sorry In fact, if the chosen sinner died before the slate got wiped clean, then he had to go to purgatory, a place of temporary cleansing and punishment so that they could end up getting their their sins forgiven and their spiritual obligations met. There's more to the story than this, but of course, Martin Luther 
uh, wrote his 95 theses and put them on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And he wasn't a perfect man and it was not a perfect movement, but basically it was used by God to show that people are saved by faith and faith alone. And that's what Paul is saying here in Romans. This gospel changes us. It changes us in astounding ways. And that's why Paul is not ashamed of it. And he starts out this letter to the Romans. He tells them about this. And then the the letter to the Romans is divided into four sections. And each one of those sections gives an amazing benefit, many amazing benefits, but we can kind of group them together and summarize them together of four incredible benefits of the gospel. And here we go. The first four chapters, the gospel reveals God's righteousness. And what Paul is going to do, he's going to take, he's going to take the world and he's going to start telling the whole world that they're guilty. And he's going to start with the pagan world in Romans chapter 1. And he's going to talk about all the things that pagans do. These are people that aren't Christians. These are people that don't know God. They don't have any exposure. And they, they, they turn and they do all kind of wrong things. Romans 1, 18 to 32 talks about that. But he's probably thinking, oh, well, you know, there's some other people who say, well, I don't do all those terrible, terrible things. And then he moves into the moral in Romans chapter 2. And he gets moral people and says, you, you fall short as well. And then there's another level because there were Jewish people who say, well, we're not pagan and we're more than moral. We're Jewish. We've got the law. We've got this. And in 2.17 to 3.8, he just nails that. Paul is nailing everybody. Whether you're pagan, whether you're moral, whether you're Jewish and you have the law. And he kind of summarizes it. In verse 10 of chapter 3, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one is righteous. Well, some of us are interested in basketball these days. And I wondered if, if there's anybody here who thinks you could make a basket, you have one shot... And you can make a basket and, you know, your prize might be, I don't know, $50 or something. Is there anybody who thinks with one shot you could make a basket? All right, Will? Anybody else? Richard? 50 bucks? Do we have... All right, come on. You three, come on. One one shot. Now, you need to be close, right? We, we can't make you shoot from way, way out there. Oh, oh, you, oh, yeah, come on. No, you can be. We can have four. We can have four shots. Let's see. I, I mean, I think if it's going to be 50 bucks, it ought to be like 30 feet or something, right? Right. And you can't get close. Like if you if you hit the rim, that's not going to do it, right? I mean, you just got to go in all the way in. It's it's. Do or die, right? All right, let's come over here. Let's go in this order. Why don't you, why don't you go first? You guys line up. Go, go over there by the door. I can't bank it. Yeah, in fact, why don't you open that door? You guys just go right ahead there. 
to, and, and line up right outside the door there. Okay. Now, Will, would you stand back behind the door for a second and close the door? Okay. Will, just go ahead and take your shot. Let's make it a hundred bucks. Go ahead. Shoot. Uh, it didn't make it. All right. Who's next? All right. Here we go. Go ahead. Shoot. I didn't, didn't work. All right. Who's next? A little closer, but sorry. And one more, Richard. Uh, no. <laughs> All right. You guys can come back. You, you can come back in. All right. Let's give him a hand. Yeah. For. You know, sometimes people think, they think things like, well, no, I, I could never, you know, if I'm sitting here, I could never make it from over here. But maybe if I could just get a little bit closer, and the analogy here is you're going to go to heaven, right? You can go to heaven if you make the basket. But you got to make the basket, and you get one shot. I can't do it from here, but, you know, maybe if I join the church, maybe if I try to stop doing all these things. Maybe if I just try harder if I'm this and I'll get closer and closer and I'll have a better shot at it. But here's the truth. The reason why we need a savior to die on a cross is because there is no way you can make the basket. You're trying to shoot for heaven on your own is like trying to shoot this basketball hoop Outside that door, right? That's what Paul says. There is none righteous. No, not one. They've all become guilty before God. They've done this. And then he goes in this long things in Romans uh, 3 about they've done this and they've done this and they've done this and then this. And it's like we read all that and we go, well, what hope is there? Because we're guilty before God. Well, in verse 21, two of the greatest words in the Bible appear. Read those with me, the two underlined. But now. But now. I've told you all this bad news. I've told you how bad everybody is and how impossible it is to please God and how you're trying to shoot outside the door. Because sin is like that door. There's no way you can get through it. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. You see, the law and prophets in the Old Testament were pointing forward to Jesus coming. They were testifying to it. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified. That's declared righteous like I was in court that day even though I wasn't. Justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Redemption, big word, it means buying back. God bought us back. 
God presented Jesus or Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Atonement is in the time in which God was satisfied with that offering through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. The gospel reveals God's righteousness. God is righteous in his character, in his activity, and in the status he gives us. And he talks about faith. And then you go into chapter 4, and he gives Abraham as this amazing example. The Jewish people had looked to Abraham as their father, and they were thinking because he kept the law. But really, he put his faith in God even before he was circumcised. That leads into the second section. So Romans 1 to 4, then there's Romans 5 to 8, and it gives us another benefit of the gospel. And it is the gospel provides believers with incredible present and future spiritual benefits. So after laying out the gospel, laying out sin, laying out our need, and saying it only happens by faith in Jesus, if you're one of those people who've put your faith in Jesus, look at the benefits that God has for you. There are four of them. In chapter 5, the hope of glory. Chapter 6, you're free from the dominion of sin. Chapter 7, you're free from the dominion of the law. And chapter 8, you have an assurance of eternal life in the Holy Spirit. You have hope of glory. Chapter 5, verse 1, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast In the hope of the glory of God, if you have been saved by God, you have peace right now and you have hope that one day you're going to be in heaven with him and he's going to glorify you. And you also are free from the dominion of sin. Chapter six, he follows that up and says, you know, God's grace has done this and that and the other. And you go, well, should we keep on sinning because God's gracious? And he says, no, no way. You who died to sin, how can you keep living in it? So what happened is when you became a Christian, you were put to death as well. Your old sinful nature was put to death just like Christ was put to death. And now you are free from sin. It doesn't mean that you're sinless. We still sin here and there. But you're no longer like dominated by sin. Because if you are dominated by sin, that's an indication that you're not a Christian. I'm talking about over a long period of time. I'm not talking about once or twice or even a season perhaps. But Paul says there, no means. We who have died to sin, how shall we live in it any longer? And he says the key is to know this, to accept it, and to yield to God. And he says in verse 14 of chapter 6, sin will no longer be your master because you're not under the law but under grace. What then shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. You see, there's two eras. There's the the era of law, the era of being outside of Christ, and then there's the era of being in Christ. God has given you freedom from the dominion of sin. He's also freed you from the dominion of the Mosaic law. You see, the Mosaic law was good. It was from God. It gave us, told us what to do. The problem is none of us could do it. (laughs) Nobody could keep the law perfectly. And so Romans 7 is this, and we read some verses out of it. Romans 7 is this picture of somebody who's really struggling and they're going back and forth and 
often we think of that as Christians, but I, I, I think it just as easily and probably my preference would be this is describing, Paul is describing what it's like when you try to get right with God under law. <laughs> when you try to please God under law, you're going you're gonna to be like this. And here's why I don't think Romans 7 pictures a true Christian because he says we know the law is spiritual in verse 14. But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. That's what it's like when we try by human effort. It's like slavery. And yet he turns in chapter 8 and says there, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. You have eternal life in the Holy Spirit. Verse 1, there is no, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So if you are saved, if you put your faith in Christ, yes, you may struggle, but you're not dominated or under the dominion of sin or of law or of guilt. There's no condemnation. He's freed us. He's given us the Holy Spirit. And he's promised, and Romans 8 is this incredible chapter about all the blessings over and over, this and that and the other. And he, he asked towards the end of the chapter, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor demons... Neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither heights nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gospel provides believers with incredible benefits. Well, Paul, you're Jewish. You're a Jewish believer. And God chose the Jewish people. And you look around, Paul, and... Why are mo many or most of the Jewish people in your time rejecting Jesus? And he addresses that in Romans 9 to 11. The third section is that the gospel reveals a righteous and faithful God who includes both Jews and Gentiles in his saving purposes. The very fact that many Jewish people in Paul's days had not put their faith in Christ... That was really ultimately, that, that, that's, that doesn't mean that God is not faithful. And that's in a very difficult and challenging section of Scripture. He explains what happens in Romans 9 through 11. And yet the, he, God had a saving purpose. And he said very clearly in Romans 10, 9, if you can declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's with your heart that you believe and are justified and is with your mouth 
that you profess your faith and are saved. And then he describes the history of how the Jewish people, God hardened them, and yet he brought the Gentiles in. And yet even though the Gentiles are coming in, God still has a plan and a love and a purpose for his chosen people, Israel. And that's what 9 through 11 is about. One more section. You're almost listening fast enough. You're not listening quite fast enough. As he concludes, he says, Just as you who at one time were disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy for you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. He brings out mercy. (laughs) And based on that, we come to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, which opens up the last section of Romans. And we learn that based on the mercy of God, the gospel provides the powers, the power for believers to live transformed lives of worship. He says, therefore, therefore, In light of everything I've said to you in Romans so far, Romans 1 through 11, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This may be the greatest definition of worship ever. This is what we mean when we say worship is a lifestyle. Worship is 24-7. It's making an offering of your body, a living sacrifice. It's holy. They gave animal sacrifices, and it a sacrifice meant total transfer of ownership, right? This animal is leaving this person's possession, and I'm giving it, and we're going to sacrifice this animal. And it was not a living sacrifice anymore. You, now that things have changed, Paul says, I want you to make a sacrifice. But the sacrifice is your body. I think the body stands for the whole self. And I want you to make a complete, holy, dedicated sacrifice. Surrender yourself completely to God. That's what he's talking about. And that affects everything we do. (laughs) That affects everything we think, everything we do. And how do you, once you make that sacrifice, how do you keep it going? Well, In verse 2, he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's God gives negatives, don't do this. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. It's the renewing of your mind. This is why we get into Scripture. This is why we meditate on Scripture. This is why we study Scripture and Let it come in. God changes and transforms us through it. I want to go back to verse 1 for a second, something I didn't point out. See the highlighted phrase, in view of God's mercy. There are a lot of reasons people perform spiritual service, duty, obligation, Maybe a sense of need, fear, guilt, a desire to please others. J.I. Packer says a lot of non-Christians 
when they think about Christians, they think our motives for like making sacrifices to God and dedicated service to God, they think it's self-serving. They see that we're just afraid of the consequences, like, you know, religion is fire insurance or something. Or they think maybe we need help and support to reach our goals, like, okay, so religion is a crutch. Or maybe they see it as a way for a social identity, like it's, it's a badge of respectability. But listen to what Packer says, and it's, it nails Romans 12.1. From the plan of salvation, I learned that the true driving force in authentic Christian live, living is and ever must be not the hope of gain, but the heart of gratitude. The heart of gratitude. I encourage you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. That's why we surrender to God. It's because it's a response to his mercy. In fact, this is how, this is like the hinge in Romans. Romans 12.1 is like the hinge. He's talking about a mercy-based surrender. And all of Romans 1 to 11 He's been talking about mercy. And now, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, he explains what that surrender looks like. You surrender, you get transformed daily, you serve the body of Christ with spiritual gifts, verses 3 to 8. Love in action, verses 9 to 21. You get into chapter 13 and you surrender to, uh, you submit to the governing authorities. And then chapter 14 and 15, when you have these differences of opinion with each other between the weak and the strong and this and that and the other, you decide that you're not going to put a stumbling block on anybody else's path, but you're going to accept them and you're not going to judge them. And that's how you live out the surrender. So there it is. The theme of Romans is the universal, powerful effects of the gospel for believers in Jesus Christ. Eric Little was a runner and a devout Christian. Many of you will know his name. In those days, to get from here to Europe, you would go by sea. And on the boat, on the way to the Paris Olympics in 1924, he learned that his race that he was a specialist in, the 100 meter, was going to be run on Sunday. Or one of the qualifying heats was going to be run on Sunday. And he had made a personal commitment that he would not race on Sunday because he was dedicating that day to the Lord. And so the day they held that heat, he was in a church in Paris. And so he, they entered him in an event that he hadn't trained for, the 400 meter. And surprisingly to everyone, not only did he win the gold medal, he set a world record. Eleven years later, he went to China to serve as a missionary and a teacher. Life in China became very dangerous, and the British government advised all nationals that they should leave. And he decided to stay behind, and he was interned in a prison camp where he died of a brain tumor in 1945. And his last words were, it's complete surrender. It's complete surrender. And church, that's what I'm calling you to today, a mercy-based surrender. Praise God for his great mercy in saving us. And based on that, offer him your bodies.
as living sacrifices. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.